0: Do faith and reason work together, or are they somehow mutually exclusive? This is Evidence and Answers with scholar, author, speaker, and apologist, Pat Zuckerit. Pat is out of the country. In fact, Pat is in Israel right now. I'm your co-host, Kevin Harris, and I'm gonna take this opportunity to fill in for Pat and interview someone that we interviewed not long ago, Dr. William Lane Craig, a very prominent philosopher and defender of the Christian faith. Dr. Craig has two PhDs, and he is well known in the area of the philosophy of time, in theology, in the existence of God, and he takes part in debates with leading atheist scholars all over the globe. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Craig on faith and reason. That happens to be the title of his book, Reasonable Faith, and the title of his website, if you'd like to check that out as well, "Reasonable Faith." By the way, Evidence and Answers has a tremendous website, evidenceandanswers.org, evidenceandanswers.org. There are many resources on some of the most important questions of all time available at evidenceandanswers.org, including Pat's interviews with leading scholars and his own commentary on contemporary issues from the cults to the occult, from atheism to Islam—that's evidenceandanswers.org. Dr. Craig, many people feel that faith and reason just don't go together. You have to have one or the other, but you can't have both.
1: Right. Well, that's part of the reason I think we picked the title was we wanted to put something out that would be provocative, that would show that faith is a rational thing to do, and that therefore there's no contradiction between faith and reason.
0: The faith and reason debate has been going on for a long time. This is nothing new. Uh, It stretches all the way back to early thinkers. Augustine, what did he say about it?
1: Well, Augustine had a, a sort of authoritarian view of faith and reason. He thought that faith precedes reason, and that faith is based upon authority. He said, I would not believe if it were not for the authority of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And so for Augustine, basically the foundation for faith is authority. And then you reason about that, having come to believe what you believe.
0: That's maybe strange to Protestant ears, mm. perhaps in today's evangelicalism or Protestantism, that kind of authority. We would hold more to perhaps the authority of the Word of God.
1: Well, exactly. And in, in, in other words, it's not a difference necessarily. There can be Protestant forms of authoritarianism, but generally the authority will not be the church, it'll be the scriptures. So there are certain modern theologians like Karl Barth, for example, or even a Cornelius Van Til, who are really authoritarians. They would say the basis for faith is simply the authoritative word of God which demands obedience and which cannot be questioned. And so the basic approach to knowledge is still the same. It's authoritarianism. But – you just have a different authority and that of course raises one of the difficult problems with authoritarianism is how do you know which authority to believe how do you know which authority is the true authority
0: it would certainly make it rather vulnerable to criticism i think well how do you know your authority is a, is authoritative and so on i do want to get to a definition of faith and a definition of reason hmm. uh, but augustine also said something that he's rather famous for, and that is faith-seeking understanding. What do you think he meant by that?
1: Well, again, I think that that speaks of the priority of faith, that first you believe and then you seek to understand what you believe. So it's not a matter that first you seek to understand and then you believe as a result, but it is first belief and then you try to unfold that through rational reflection and so forth. And there's, of course, huge debate on which of these has priority. Does faith precede reason or reason precede faith? And, uh, Augustine wasn't altogether clear about exactly how you put this whole package together.
0: Yeah, because he was, he seemed to engage reason a lot, but then he also engaged his faith.
1: Exactly. He, he was authoritarian in terms of saying that you first believe and then you, then you reason about it. But he also recognized that you have to figure out whom to believe, and that that will be a search that does involve reason at the same time as you look at the different competing authorities. So his view isn't altogether clear um, as to how this is going to work its way out. Let's get a good uh,
0: definition of faith then. What do we mean by faith? Well, the way I understand faith,
1: Kevin, is that it is a trust or a commitment in something, I don't think that faith is a way of knowing something, and I think this is a fundamental mistake that a lot of people make. They think reason takes us so far, and then faith makes the leap that bridges the remaining gap, however that might be. And so the way you come to know something is through faith. That's not the way I understand faith in the New Testament sense. As I understand faith, you could know something to be true and yet still not have faith in it. The scriptures say that the demons believe that God exists, and they tremble. Why? Well, because they don't have saving faith in him. So I don't think that faith is a way of knowing. I don't think that faith is something that's incompatible with knowledge. You can know something to be true and still face the decision, am I going to have faith, that is to say trust or commitment, in this thing that I know to be true?
0: I've heard theologians say that faith is not a way of knowing something. Faith is what you do with what you know. Yeah. That might work. Does that work as a definition? Well, I think so. It's a commitment to something that
1: you hold as true. I think that that's the best way that it should be done. Now, in in some cases, I think people could trust or place their commitment in something that they don't know to be true, but maybe they hope is true, or they have an idea might be true, and so they're willing to make that, Commitment or trust, even though they don't know it. But at least I think we want to say that faith is not in any way incompatible with knowledge, that faith can be trusting in something I know to be true. And in a sense, that's what you were saying.
0: And that's opposite of what Mark Twain said, it seems. Right. Faith is the believing in and what you know ain't true. Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that faith is for people who know it ain't true, but you believe it anyway. That is, I think, a very popular conception of religious belief in our culture.
0: Bill, it seems to be maybe some nuances. Maybe you have a scale of faith. It seems on mm. one end you've got blind faith, and on the other end you've got a reasonable faith. Mm. Some things take more faith than than others.
1: Well, I think the definition is the same, namely trust or commitment. But you're very right, I think, Kevin, in saying that that trust in, or commitment can be made... On very different grounds. As you say, one could be a blind faith where, oh, imagine you're hiking in the Alps and you see a, a mountain thunderstorm arising and you realize you've got to get off that mountain. You've got to get off quickly and you don't know say, the way down, and you come to a fork, you may just have to decide blindly which fork to take and just trust that this is the path that will lead you to safety, even though you don't know. That would be an example of blind faith. But an example of reasonable faith would be where you have some indication that this is the truth, that there's some pointers that say this is the way, uh, and some testimony, perhaps, saying that this is the way. And then You could have a faith that is based upon absolute certainty where, say, you you see that this leads down the mountain and it's right there in front of you. You still are trusting in this path to take you to the right destination, even though you know that it will. So once we think of faith in those terms, we can see there are all kinds of different grounds for faith that might be made. And I think the faith itself comes in degrees. I think that is something else that you— pointed out that some people's faith can be weak, other people's faith could be very strong, and our faith can waver at times. So faith comes in degrees as well.
0: Well, it would take more faith for me to get on an airplane if there was smoke coming out of the, <laughs> the tail and one of the wings are broken off. It would take a lot of faith to get on that plane. But it wouldn't take as much faith. It wouldn't take much faith at all to get on a, a healthy-looking uh, plane, because the odds are very much in your favor, and we have a history of the airlines that would support you placing your faith in there. Take a lot of faith to get on a busted-up-looking airplane.
1: I suppose it would be more of a a blind faith in that case uh, that you were talking about.
0: Well, if faith is trust, assent, it's a commitment. Then something is true. What would reason be?
1: Well, the way I understand or use the word reason, particularly in the book Reasonable Faith, is what I'm talking about is argument and evidence for a conclusion um, so that you have good reasons to believe the the conclusion is true. That's what I mean, arguments and evidence for some conclusion.
0: By the way, the book Reasonable Faith has been out for some time, and uh, you're doing the third revision on it.
1: That's right. Almost 25 years now that this book has been in print, and uh, Crossway uh, asked me to do the uh, third edition of it. And so one of the projects that I was recently involved in was going through the whole thing again, revising it, updating it, expanding it in preparation for that third edition.
0: There seems to be a contrast also in your book of seeing something as true versus believing something is true. True. I guess if we were to see that something was true, we would uh, empirically verify it, maybe see it with our eyes. But believing may not involve the optical nerve.
1: Well, this is a, a distinction that, again, you find in Augustine and in Aquinas, where, again, I think you have this kind of opposition between knowing and believing, that if you see something to be true, then you don't need to believe it is true. And that's the kind of opposition that I'm opposing. I I think that you can see that something is true and yet still confront the crisis of, am I going to trust in this? Am am I going to commit myself to it? So I don't see that this distinction between seeing and believing is is a good one, although it's one that's found in classical authors like Aquinas.
0: Dr. Craig, Alvin Plantegei is a very important philosopher of religion. What is his take on this whole topic?
1: Well, Plantinga believes that there are good arguments and evidence for the existence of God. I've seen statements by him where he says that he thinks the evidence and arguments makes it more probable than not that God exists. And that's a pretty bold statement. He would say that someone who was just following the evidence would come to the conclusion that God exists, more than 50% probability. But Plantinga's concern is to show that this isn't necessary in order for faith in God to be rational or even for us to know that God exists. He thinks that evidence and arguments are fine, they exist, they are there, but you don't need them, that you can know that God exists wholly apart from arguments because God has put into us certain faculties, certain cognitive mechanisms, if you will, that when they're functioning properly will naturally form The belief that he exists. And uh, one of these he calls uh, a divine sense. He thinks it's innate in every person. It's, It's like the sense of sight or the sense of hearing or the sense of smell. He thinks we have a kind of divine sense that when functioning properly will form in us the belief that God exists. And then in addition to that, he also thinks that the Holy Spirit produces in us belief in the great truths of the gospel. Uh, and by that, he means the central Christian doctrines that are declared in Scripture. So that when I read the Scripture, the Holy Spirit in some way moves me to assent to these doctrines. He, he testifies to their truth, and Plantinga thinks that on the basis of this divine sense— And this inner witness of the Holy Spirit, we can know both that God exists and the great truths of the gospel, even if we have no evidence or arguments on behalf of those truths. Seems like we know a lot of things
0: like that, Bill. We know them kind of immediately or or directly. Yes. Planning
1: would say that this is the way we actually know most things. Really? Yes. I remember George Mavrodis, uh, who is a philosopher at University of Western Michigan, saying to me once that when you read planning, you might at first get the impression that he's saying you have a sort of foundation of your system of beliefs, which is like the foundation of a skyscraper. And then on top of that, you build this great skyscraper on top of that foundation. And it's only the foundation that you know in this sort of immediate way that we've just described. But he said, really, that's not planning his view at all. He says, planning his view is more that your system of knowledge is like a big, empty lot with rambling foundations going all around the lot. And here or there, there might be a few bricks piled on top of the foundations. But in fact, most of the things that we know, he would say, would be known in this kind of properly basic Way, For example, my belief that there is an external world isn't formed by some kind of an argument where I say, I'm getting these sense impressions that there are cars and people and trees out there. Those impressions are likely to be correct, therefore it's likely that there is an external world. No, he would just say, in the immediate context of seeing and hearing and feeling things, We instinctively form the belief in the external world, and we have no good reason to doubt it, and so we just accept it as a kind of properly basic belief. It's part of the deliverances of reason, but it's not based on argument and evidence. And he would say exactly
0: the same thing is true of God. I wonder if we've known this for millennia, but Mm. empirical verification that every And that the scientific method has kind of come in and rubbed this out of us a little bit and made us doubt it. I mean, we live in a culture uh, where seeing is believing, and that means the five senses. It's kind yeah. of crowded out the common sense of what you're saying, what yeah. Plantinga is saying. Well,
1: historically, I'm I'm thinking historically here, there, there has always been, in Western philosophy, a skeptical tradition. There are ancient Greek skeptics. But it, but it is true that this skeptical tradition really came to a head in modernity with Descartes and the French skeptics who began to doubt everything, even the existence of the external world, the existence of the past, and tried to find some sort of foundation for knowledge that would allow them to build this sort of skyscraper, as, as it were, on top of that. And I think that project has largely failed. I think that most folks would recognize that you can't build that kind of a structure, that most of our beliefs are going to have to be foundational sort of beliefs that are simply formed in the context of certain experiences. And if you have no good reason to think those are false, then you're perfectly rational to go ahead with those beliefs and to, and to hold to them. And so, in one sense, planning is getting back, I think, to that more traditional view that was undermined, I think, in, in the modern age by the rise of skepticism.
0: Seems like in this first chapter of Reasonable Faith, uh, Dr. Craig, you kind of contrast knowing Christianity is true versus showing Christianity is true.
1: Yes, this distinction is one that I hit upon after wrestling for a long time with this problem of the relationship between faith and reason. And what I think pulled me in opposite directions is, on the one hand, it seems that we do have, through the witness of the Holy Spirit and the experience of God, a kind of assurance of the truth of Christianity that is wholly independent of arguments and evidence, The, the simplest child of God, or even a mentally retarded person who can't comprehend philosophical arguments or historical arguments for the Gospels, can know and know with assurance that Christianity is true. And you don't want to deny those people the privilege of having faith, which you would have to do if you say that in order to know Christianity is true, that you have to have all sorts of argument and evidence for it. On the other hand, what you want to avoid then is some sort of relativistic subjectivism where everybody and anybody who claims to have some sort of an experience is rational in claiming that he knows what he believes in this properly basic way. And so the distinction that I hit upon is this difference between knowing and showing. I think the way that I know that Christianity is true is, as Plantinga says, through the immediate witness of the Holy Spirit. This is an objective function of the Holy Spirit in my life, testifying to me that I am a child of God, that God exists, that I know Him, and and so forth. On the other hand, because that is an interior experience, when I come to talking to someone else who doesn't have that experience— it does no good for me simply to say, well, I have this inner experience that you don't have, but gee, if you did, you would <laughs> know this too. If I want to show him that what I believe is true, then I need to present arguments and evidence. And so I see the arguments and evidence as confirmatory of what I already know, independently of argument and evidence, but that I can use to show another person that what I know to be true in a basic way is is, in fact, true, and, and I can give him good reasons to think so.
0: Dr. Craig, some have criticized this view and called it kind of a dual knowledge, dual source of knowledge, that you've got a knowledge of Christianity through facts and evidence, and you've got knowledge of Christianity directly by the Holy Spirit. Is there any warrant to that criticism? Well, I don't think
1: it's a criticism. I, I, I think it's true, and I don't see anything that's problematic about it. I think that, on the one hand... I know that Christianity is true through the inner and immediate witness of the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, I do think that I have good evidence to think that this is true and in a discussion with someone could present such evidence. So to give an analogy, suppose you're accused of a crime that you know you didn't commit, you know you were at home alone in your room at the time this crime was said to be committed. So you you know you're innocent. You don't need any evidence. You don't need any proof of that. You know you didn't do it. But if you were accused and dragged into court, you would need to produce evidence that would convince the jury that you're innocent. Hopefully you'd get some sort of an alibi or something of that sort. And that evidence and argument might be entirely sufficient to make them acquit you, that anybody looking at that argument and evidence would know that you didn't commit the crime. Now, that evidence is also available to you. It's not available to just the jury. So in a sense, you would be doubly warranted in your innocence, in belief in your innocence. On the one hand, you would know it immediately because you know that you didn't do it, you were at home alone. But then also you would have all the warrant that accrues to that belief from the evidence and the argument that the jury gets to hear. So you would have a kind of double warrant, I think.
0: Bottom line, as we end this program, Dr. Craig, it seems like you're saying that the poor farmer in a small town in the Midwest who is uneducated can come to know Christ without an exhaustive examination of all the evidence for Christianity, or a highly educated professor can come to Christ because He's persuaded by the evidence and the historicity of Christ and so forth. And they both come to to the same Lord, but they seem to come in, in different ways. Do we have to do an exhaustive, or do we have to know the evidence and arguments before we can make a commitment to Christ? Absolutely not. I think that your
1: example is a good illustration of the fact that both of these people can come to the same conclusion, the same Lord, by different routes, And moreover, and this is the key thing that I want to say, both routes are perfectly rational. It is perfectly rational to follow the arguments and evidence to the conclusion they lead to. It is also perfectly rational to believe in the great truths of the gospel on the basis of the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Both are the deliverances of reason.
0: Dr. Craig, our question of the day, is the Big Bang compatible with the book of Genesis? Wow, that's a big question.
1: (laughs) Uh, I think it is. Um, It's certainly compatible with what Genesis says at the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hebrew, the language, had no word for the universe. So they would use the expression the heavens and the earth to mean the totality of everything. And so it says, in the beginning, God created the universe. And then in verse 2, the focus suddenly shifts. It narrows to the earth. And it says the earth was without form and void. So I take it that verse 1 describes the origin of the universe, and then the remainder of the chapter describes how God turned the earth into a habitable place for man.
0: From what you're saying, it seems that the Christian should not be in any way threatened by Big Bang cosmology and the research done in that area.
1: I don't think so, because the Big Bang confirms the fact that the universe has not existed forever, but came into being and was created psalm
0: 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of god and they literally give knowledge of what he has done can we take that to mean that god has revealed himself in nature and we can actually gain knowledge of how he's done it and what creation says
1: oh i i believe that very firmly that you see the fingerprints of the potter and the clay so to speak and that as physical science probes the universe It finds, as it were, signposts of transcendence pointing beyond
0: its existence to its ground in a supernatural creator and designer. We wanna thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zukeran on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, Apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. There's a new feature on our website called iShows where you can download each individual show for just $250. On our website, evidenceandanswers.org, just like you download a song on iTunes, these are iShows that you can download each individual show you want. And we've got some of the top scholars on there. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ and will help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. This has been Kevin Harris. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zukarin. God bless and thanks so much for listening. Evidence and Answers